Francis Farrell is a journalist and photographer and reporter at the Kiev Independent. He's a recent international studies graduate and a Russia and Eurasia aerial specialist with interest and experience in the areas of elections, media freedom, regional and hybrid conflicts. He's a native English speaker and also Hungarian with fluent Russian and Ukrainian languages. Today we're going to be talking about an article he wrote in the Kiev Independent, which has received uh, a lot of attention, uh, and that is about how Ukraine could still the war. Sorry, did that begin? And this is how Ukraine could still lose the war, and what needs to be done in order to prevent that. Welcome to Second Curtain. Uh, please like and subscribe to discover more fantastic speakers we have on the channel. Do please also consider becoming a patron to support the work of the channel and also do look up the Kiev Independent. If you can, subscribe to it because it is a fantastic source of information about Ukraine and the war. Francis, welcome to the channel. Thanks for having me. Well, I have to ask, first of all, the, the article, you've written a number of articles for the Kiev Independent. Why this particular topic now? Um, and it's quite a sensitive topic as well, isn't it? I mean, it must have uh, caused uh, a little bit of, uh, let's say, in, in certain quarters, a little bit of uh, concern. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, thank you. Um, well, for a few, a few reasons, uh, I think. For those people who are following Ukraine uh, closely from from outside Ukraine, but especially for those people like us who are following everything that's going on, but we're in Ukraine as well, and and the future of our homes depends on on this war. You know, there was a very distinct feeling of of doom and gloom around around the months of late October to November, and coming into December, and. You know, it was on one hand, it was kind of clear why this was the case. Uh, on the other hand, there was a lot of just general confusion and mixing of of emotions and fact and people not really understanding even why why right now that we're feeling this way. Uh, so my main aim, I guess, in that respect was to inject some clarity and kind of really break down where we are uh, at this war at this stage of the war and and why that is and and what that means for the future because you know uh the future is in some respects in our hands if we talk about the west but also about ukraine and um and also depending on on russia's choices so there's no kind of we're not we're not fated to go down a certain line but we need to have a close uh, contact with reality to to understand where we are and what we need to do to to change where we go forward and so just to 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 say exactly what those things are i guess the two probably um, most important kind of events uh that brought us to this kind of gloomy phase in the war i guess would be as follows the first is the basic more or less culmination of the Ukrainian counteroffensive in the south and the east of Ukraine. Um, you know, we see we might still hear from official um, official sources like general staff that still we're going forward and we're liberating our land, but we see have seen for a long time, for perhaps even as long as two months, that that hasn't been happening anymore on the ground, um, and that that is a big deal uh unfortunately and and it was also confirmed by the fact that the russians immediately took the initiative in early october 
and began to attack uh, Avdivka near Donetsk and a few other areas in eastern Ukraine. And so that's a big deal because the counteroffensive was uh, Ukraine's last straightforward, I would say, uh, path towards victory. This assumption that with months of planning, yes, the Russians will have time to prepare themselves, but with our months of planning, saving up a lot of ammunition, receiving a lot of uh, Western armored vehicles and having these new NATO trained brigades ready to go fresh. Um, that is how we're going to break through, pierce through these Russian lines and really throw everything wide open. Uh, and that and that didn't happen. And unfortunately, now it's very hard to see any kind of scenario in the near future where Ukraine could be in such a good position to do it again. Uh, it's just objectively the amount of ammunition required, the amount of uh, of units required to be at full fighting capability, um, the Russians having more and more time to to dig in, to learn their own lessons from the counteroffensive. So that was one thing. And then the second thing was um, the fact that, of course, now we have uh, Western aid flows, both from the US and from the European Union in in serious strife. Uh, we'll see in a few days, I think, perhaps in a few weeks, if the Democrats can get their funding bill through Congress. But we also have headlines from Europe, like in Politico, saying that Viktor Orban, who is, of course, uh, Putin's sympathizer, uh, wants to blow up the EU's uh, Ukraine policy. So, um, you know, in the best case scenario, things, the shells will keep moving and keep flowing as they have been, but it's very hard to imagine them uh, increasing. And there is a real threat that they will dry up. And so... Both these things together, both the counteroffensive culminating, Russia taking the initiative, and uh, the threat of, of aid flows uh, drying up, it completely changes the general discussion we've had about, about what could happen in this war uh, in the mid to long term. Because when we were all waiting for this Ukrainian counteroffensive, there was a lot of hope that it would succeed and that would be the road to victory. So either it succeeds and, and we have victory or we get close to it or it kind of maybe fails, but there'll still be more or less a stalemate. But when you add the threat of aid uh, stopping, then and you see how much energy the Russians still have to go forward, Unfortunately, it seems like now defending and holding the line would be almost a good scenario where the real threat is that the Russians could start going forward because they're just trying to attrit the Ukrainian military to degrade it and break it down as much as possible. And although the front line might be quite static at the moment, who knows what could happen in a year's time or in two years time if there's no more Western aid. Um, so I just wanted to kind of raise the alarm a little bit about that, not 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 incite panic, but just remind people that uh, the way Ukraine defended Kiev and defended its independence against a Russian army, who, which had no idea what it was doing. Uh, that's one thing, but it can't be taken for granted and assumed to be uh, the case for the rest of the war now that the Russian army knows what it's doing. Yeah. I could say. And this is where I think 
a lot of uh, a lot of material not you not yours of course but a lot of media material doesn't qualify it uses it throws around words like victory etc now of course ukraine was able to repulse uh substantial russian forces around kiev it was able to take Kherson and kharkiv so when we talk about victory when we talk about russia going on the offensive we're probably not talking about a huge war of maneuver are we we're talking about little villages and, and hamlets being taken uh we're talking about attriting lines and so on um it seems very unlikely uh despite the ammunition problems that russia is suddenly going to master uh you know combined arms warfare and all these uh conscripts that we see with barely any training um it's it's quite unlikely they're suddenly going to turn into battle-hardened troops so in terms of of victory uh, what are we what are we talking here? I mean, it's very different as well, isn't it? The Ukrainian concept of victory is very different from the Russian one. You know, the Russians can sell, um, you know, taking a couple of little towns at this point and, 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 and label it a victory. And they can say, yes, we denazified Ukraine, blah, blah, blah. For Ukraine, victory is a far more substantial concept, which... Uh, as you say, seems to be um, unrealistic at this point. Uh, yeah, so you're right that there's no, um, you know, things on the front line are, are are not in a crisis point right now. In fact, they're, they're quite stable. And we can see that despite the ridiculous amount of resources, men, ammunition, um, that Russia is throwing into their assault on Avdivka, which is actually already, before they started, surrounded on three sides. You'd think they'd be in a pretty good position there. Uh, they're still having very, very little success, very slowly. I mean, not, they could they could take uh, Avdivka over winter, but but it's you know they've the losses they've taken ha have been have been ridiculous and uh, Zaluzhny General Zaluzhny wrote about this he he talked about how maneuver warfare was basically near impossible for both sides at this point with where everyone was so dug in um the importance of drones can't be underestimated here because it's just very difficult to bring armored vehicles anywhere near the front line when both sides just have such a good system of spotting it kilometers away and immediately finding things to target it with. Um, but again, I'm talking about uh, the the long term because it's it's a war of attrition, and unfortunately, Russia has simply more resources. So, which is why I disagree with the the word stalemate. Uh, even if the front line isn't moving, um, we have. If you look at the figures, at least the Ukrainian figures, you can see that we're looking at some of the most intensity, high intensity fighting that we've seen throughout the full scale war. And so what you what that means is, is both sides are just trying everything they can do to degrade the military potential of the other side. And and, you know, for for Ukraine and for Russia, they, they just have um they just have more resources and unfortunately they've adapted uh they have really gotten on top of the of the drone war you know we see their use of of lancet drones further in the rear we see uh how they've upped their fpv suicide drone production um i was in avdivka not not in the city but in the area uh a month ago and 
at one of the field hospitals and one of the the doctors was telling me that um, it's now about 50-50, the wounds that Ukrainian soldiers are suffering, 50% artillery, traditional shrapnel, that's usually the vast majority, and 50% from these FPV suicide drones. So even if you have what looks like a stalemate and what looks like, you know, things not moving in, in any way, um, when you have both sides going for a war of attrition at such high intensity, over time, and we're talking maybe not even just the winter season, maybe not even just 2024, but even 2025, like that will probably start to noticeably go in somebody's favor. And um, and then that's when other problems uh, could, could emerge. And of course there are, um, there's evidence that Russia is increasing its military budget significantly in next year's budget. Uh, it's mm -hmm. also increased the uh, conscription draft. So at the, this point, it doesn't look like they yet want to go to the big cities and just start sort of drafting people randomly, but they have increased the number of people uh, joining the military um, in the order of, uh, I think it was 170,000, I'm not 100% sure, uh, but it's, yep. it's it's a large number. Um these, of course, will not be trained. It's unlikely they'll have significant training before being uh, thrown onto the front lines. This attrition works both ways, doesn't it, though? Because in order to keep this going for two or three years, eventually Russia will have to start drafting people from the large cities, which they've avoided doing. It's likely they'll avoid doing that until the election comes up. Now, we're not saying that, uh, that the election's in any way going to be free or fair, but it does seem that Putin wants to avoid any kind of unpleasantness or demonstrations. He wants it to be a, a simple coronation uh, without uh, any anything getting in the way. Um, that also is a point of significant risk for Russia, isn't it? Because you could see vast numbers of people fleeing the country once again. Yeah, uh, the, and this is where we, we get to, I guess, the, the consequences in the rear of both countries uh, of, of such a brutal war of attrition. Um, so yeah, let's talk about Russia first. Uh, I, I, I agree with you that, you know, they have to find more men from, from somewhere. And I, I think there's, there's plenty of value in that theory that exactly that Putin knows that he will have to mobilize more people from the cities soon, but he wants to wait for the election just, for some internal strange reason and with time you know that that pressure will rise unfortunately when people place too much hope in in this uh my response is usually very simple uh when was the last time that anything bottom up coming from inside putin's russia made any difference to what he was able to do or not you know we can talk about rising dissatisfaction we can talk about uh the breakdown of of trust in the state and and social trust um we can talk about hundreds of thousands perhaps millions more uh people trying to flee the country which which is all all well and good but uh at what point when we're talking about a man who is completely in control of of the country's power vertical and who has only one thing on his mind which is the war above all else and he's perfected a system of complete resistance 
to uh, resilience against any internal resistance. I mean, we saw what happened with Wagner and we haven't seen any real protest in Russia for, for so long. So unfortunately for me, the way I look at things and having having lived a bit in Russia and, and knowing what it's like on that side, uh, I, I just don't see how any of that can lead to lead to a problem, a real problem, because we see he doesn't have anything to lose and he's quite confident. Um, in comparison to that, you can look at Ukraine and I would argue that although the rates of attrition are much lower, I would say, in Ukraine and although although there is a, a culture in Ukraine of actually caring quite a bit for the for the lives of their soldiers, although that culture isn't necessarily flawless and universally implemented. Um, there is certainly a, a bigger problem, I would say, in the in the Ukrainian rear, because first of all, Ukraine has uh, a lot less people, and uh, the economy is is in a lot more of a difficult, uh, dependent uh, place. Um, but mo most importantly, Ukraine is a democracy. So when when it, the time comes for you know things to be pushed too much to the extreme of course it's a country that has a strong culture of of defending itself and defending its independence its its sovereignty and its own democracy we wouldn't be here if if they had the same completely uh, apathetic attitude that most russians have but at the same time when this goes on and on and on and we see such a high price paid for for very little on the front line in terms of liberated territory or, or something like that. And, and we see, and we can talk about this later, we, we see this year, this following year, probably being marked by the return of internal politics to Ukraine. Um, I would say these, these problems are, are much bigger in Ukraine, actually. And internal politics is an interesting one to go on to. I and mean, we'll get back to uh, Zaluzhny and uh, Zelensky's article in a minute. Um, but that's been a significant feature of this period since the articles were published. Um, mm -hmm. There have been certain voices. Now, of course, the most notable of these is uh, Aristovich, who has very little in the way of a political power base. Um, and Ukrainians have assured me that he's not a Russian asset. I'm not 100% sure, uh, given his his behaviours that clearly seems to be uh, undermining the state. But you also have others. Uh, Goncharenko notably has started uh, injecting criticism uh, of Zelensky. So what are the risks of a return to politics? And in fact, you know, is it difficult to label this as a bad thing, given that uh, Ukraine is a democracy uh, and, you know, you can't put a lid on that uh, forever? Yeah, um, so it's not just uh, Aristovich or, or Goncharenko or Poroshenko's people. We're also, um, you know, we're also seeing shots fired back the other way by people from Zelensky's party who seem to see Zeluzhny himself as, as the main political threat. And... It's it's all very strange. Uh, it's I mean it's understandable, but but it's strange that that these high profile people who uh, openly know that the the fate of the country is is at stake here uh, are really prepared. I mean it hasn't got too ugly yet. I would say there's there's a lot. It, it can get a lot uglier, and and 
Uh, Aristovich, I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about him too much because yeah, public opinion has certainly uh, shifted against him, and I think he might have even left Ukraine. Um, but but it's uh, it, it's strange because on the one hand you have the issue of elections themselves, so that's uh, uh, and then I think Zelensky after having publicly and privately entertained them for a long time, I think he definitely made the right decision by saying, no, this is not the time. Um, but, you know, behind elections, the problem with with, with elections is that it, it in, not only incites political competition, it, it makes political competition absolutely uh, necessary to come to come forward. Um, and when you when you don't have elections, then then it kind of simmers in the background and it has the potential to to flare up and and get ugly but uh you know at least at least there's no immediate uh, immediate maneuvering to to be done uh, i think when zelensky was asked about elections in an interview a, a few months ago he made an interesting comment that um so many people say that it's in my interest to hold elections now during war so I can cement my power. But so many people are also saying that it's not in my interest to hold elections so I can um, kind of kill the polit political process and, and, and start forming a, a dictatorship here. Uh, personally, I think, and I think what need, what a lot of these people perhaps should be reminded of uh, is that the most important thing now is is the battlefield and the country's performance on the battlefield and the decisions that need to be made for for that to be competent and so you know perhaps in theory you might not think that political competition or even elections is such a bad thing during wartime when you potentially see that it could have uh, a real effect on the big strategic choices that the country makes, uh, especially when, again, there's no guarantee that we're on a straight path towards victory here in this war. So every of the every one of those decisions is a is a great matter of national security. Um, that's that's when things things potentially get really dangerous. And of course, we know that Russia will leverage uh, what it sees as the weaknesses of democracy uh, and electoral processes are a classic place for Russia to try and sort of hack or conduct active measures. Is that another consideration here? Uh, yes, I would say it is. Uh, it's not as easy to do out in the open, for example, in the same way as as Russia could mess with the discourse of elections in in western countries um because because there is a very strong societal um kind of thick protective layer of of critical thinking and of uh, awareness of of what a so-called russian disinformation operation is um, but but obviously the Russians are, are smarter than to just come out and say you know, and and flood the airwaves with oh um, we need peace or oh we need to be friends with the the Russians you know in 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 their social media farms and so on in comments no they they're smarter than that and they can they can look for the more subtle the more divisive uh, moments that really they really could you know, throw Ukrainians back and forth. Um, for example, 
uh, one thing that comes up a lot in social media comments, and of course it's hard to analyze this and see who's a Russian bot, but it's I think the Russians are known to have focused on this issue, is the idea of corruption and of corrupt um, you know MPs and council members and how their kids are in 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 you know overseas or something or they're they're host, holding lavish weddings stealing money they're definitely not going to fight while uh, more and more people are being taken away in 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 the villages or in the cities even especially in russian speaking regions and you know there's a, there are a lot of half truths there there are a lot of a lot of mps who are actually fighting for example um but but those are the things you know without just coming out with openly pro russian messaging those are the things that that can sow little tensions in society and it's we know for sure that the russians are working on that and you also mentioned earlier the sort of straight fight and the fact that uh, it would require and this is the essence of uh, zaluzhny's article it requires some significant technological uh uh, advance or innovation or even some new uh, capabilities that haven't been supplied in order to break the deadlock, which is the word you used. Um, we do see, of course, that Ukraine is very adept at using uh, irregular techniques of, of warfare. So we've got the extraordinary strikes on the Kerch Bridge. We've got Black Sea Fleet headquarters, incredibly uh, dramatic and humiliating for Russia. And in this last week, we have the strikes against the BAM, which is an extraordinary or audacious uh, action. I, I'm bemused as to why this hasn't got more traction in the Western press, because it's it's an extraordinary achievement. Mm. And also it humiliates uh, Russia in front of China, uh, its, main, uh, its main partner uh, in con- continuation of the warfare. Yeah, um, there's no doubt that that's always been a strength um, of Ukraine's uh, asymmetrical uh, warfare, very intelligent and innovative use of of drones and and basically the creation, especially of of long range strike capabilities that no one thought Ukraine would even even had uh, until until they're used. And I I guess the, the, the kind of partisan attack against against the BAM could even be called a very, very long range uh, strike capability or um, theoretically speaking but yeah and these these are all impressive and these are all um you know things that we can we can be happy about um and and they do have a a political i would say a very important political effect because they are they kind of hit this button reminding putin of the humiliation and the damage that that he can suffer i guess to his ego um for as long as he continues uh, this war, I, I'm I'm very. I talk a lot about long-range missiles and um, and strike capability on on Crimea, because I think that if Ukraine is able to kind of exert full control uh, and you know get the upper hand over Russian air defenses and basically hit anything they want in Crimea. Uh, the bridge, uh, airfields, the fleets, um, as much as they want. That's one thing that's going to really put pressure on, on, on Putin to 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 rethink uh, what he's doing in Ukraine. But uh, just the unfortunate thing is that 
these events are a long way away from the front line. Uh, and you can talk about uh, logistics, you can talk about public opinion and humiliation, but at the end of the day, you know, those kind of headline grabbing things are not immediately what's going to suddenly empower Ukraine to get through these, you know, several mile thick minefields and, and underground trench systems that we have on the front line that still needs to be done with, with enough munitions uh, on the ground enough artillery enough fpv drones uh, and a and a capable coordinated combined arms offensive um you know by by ukrainian units on the ground and i don't know if you read the the recent washington post uh, two-part series on the counteroffensive. there could be a whole a whole discussion about that to be honest but it's it's really really well done and it does uh sum up a unfortunate fact that when it comes to Ukrainian fortunes on the battlefield, success or failure, it's not just a function of Western support. Uh, my article was more focused on that because it, it, would, it, would, it wouldn't make sense to, to try and cover both, uh, but, and it is in many ways a function of Western support, but the other huge half of the equation is what the Ukrainians do with it and how competent uh, they are. And so it just seems a long, long way away where on the highest level, you know, somehow there could be enough support, enough material and enough, you know, competence and intelligence to do this whole thing better uh, a second time. Yeah. So you've got two sides <clears throat> who um, potentially do not have that sophisticated training uh, in sort of combined arms and manoeuvres. Hence, you cannot... Uh, you cannot tackle really complex operations, and this this I guess applies to both sides, um, and hence the the drone warfare, and and you control the things that you can. Um, yeah, although Russia has an air force, um, and that that that's a big difference, and it could it made a big difference uh, for for the Ukrainians who are trying to attack, who didn't have their own backing, and it makes it makes things a lot easier for Russians when they want to attack, but they still fail for other reasons. Yeah. Um, and the, the the next big topic, or I guess the, the, the last big topic, because we've covered some fairly big ones, this is the fear that also has become more vocal in the last couple of months, a realisation that actually uh, Washington and potentially Berlin do not want a substantive uh, the Ukrainian victory. They do not seem to want Russia to be fully ejected from Ukraine's lands. Um, and to an extent, this isn't just sort of dithering and uh, lack of organization, that there is some kind of strategic purpose to denying Ukraine the uh, munitions and the equipment it needs for that uh, substantial victory. Yeah, this is one of the perhaps the trickiest uh, topics to talk about uh in this in this whole war and and it's it's very difficult because you need to move beyond uh your own initial emotional response and you need to assess all, all the facts quite um yeah quite soberly but uh, yeah at the end of the day i think i think 
it could be it, it is the case um and and i think there are a few things that that back it up very very clearly um first of all first of all i mean it's worth acknowledging that that fear of of escalation and fear of of nuclear use is not completely unfounded um it, it's it's not something that would have likely happened with anything we've seen on in the war on its current trajectory um and you know none of what has happened so far even you know receiving western tanks or western jets or or you know ukraine embarrassing russia to no end by pushing them out of kisson those were all things that could be dealt with because overall the russian plan for the war uh remained intact and putin still believed that that he can he can take this and he can win but the scenario i mean let's be let's be brutally honest the scenario in which ukraine would potentially be on the threshold of delivering a really devastating total defeat to to russia so potentially breaking through the south and reaching the azov sea and and then threatening uh, crimea making it very clear to putin that he's lost this war um his whole special operation his whole dream of conquest in ukraine is is going out the window and the russian military is collapsing on all fronts that is the one and only scenario in which um in which the use of of nuclear weapons could be could be on the table i think um but then again it is ukraine who who would be which would be in danger and ukraine is ready uh to take that risk because the alternative is for the nuclear danger itself to be the reason why you don't go and and liberate your lands and and free people from occupation and do we um, think we do think that nuclear threat is more of a skirt, scorched earth policy because tactically it probably wouldn't give a huge advantage to russia militarily you know your own forces would have to be fighting in a radioactive wasteland the same as your opponents so it it, it it's not clear that that would give any significant advantage militarily yeah well i mean there you get into some very scary hypotheticals um and and it's and again unfortunately russia is is centralized uh and and all under under one man so you know people it would it didn't make sense for anyone else to invade ukraine in the first place but he was like yep we're doing this uh, and the same thing goes for for nuclear use i think so i wouldn't yeah it, it's weird to talk about but it, it's impossible to to rule out not only tactical use, but some kind of strategic use, you know, symbolic in the same way the Americans did to, to quickly force a surrender. Um, but yeah, uh, moving on, like as for as so, so that that fear is legitimate, although I don't think it's a legitimate reason uh, not to empower a Ukrainian victory. But the other obvious signs are a the public statements, you know, from the very start of the war. Um, whether whether people are talking about um, not humiliating Putin, like Macron used to say back in the day, uh, or constantly saying that we can't give this because we're worried about escalation. Um, whereas where they did eventually give that uh, in you know, six months or a year down the line. Um, yeah, talk just you can see you can see how 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 they they form form these statements. It's always as long as it takes in for, for the long haul, 
or if they're being really honest, they, it's about uh, setting conditions for a just and durable peace. But it, you very, very rarely, if ever, hear um, them talk, you know, Biden or Blinken or Austin or Schultz or, or someone like that saying our goal here is to give Ukraine everything it needs to go all the way to Crimea and so on. Um, and then behind those statements, obviously, lie political decisions about the delivery or non-delivery of of certain weapon systems and and i think again long-range missiles are the most obvious example of this because they might not necessarily be the wonder weapons that will immediately cause uh russia to to break apart but but they're a good indicator of political will as i wrote in the article you know um when we talk about uh, the Atakums missiles, for example, and how they were they were only given a handful, maybe a couple of dozen of of the shortest range ones, so not the range that can hit the Crimean bridge, but just the 165 kilometer version with cluster munitions and immediately before they were even announced, they used them so effectively against these Russian helicopters. And those Russian helicopters were the ones that had done so much damage to the Ukrainian counteroffensive. Um, and so it's it's very hard at this point to find, uh, you know, a reasonable moral justification for that. And and again, it's a question of time because, and Ukraine is is responsible for this too. But but if those systems were in Ukrainian hands. You know, they the political decisions to give them were made a lot earlier in the very first months of the war. And then obviously, yes, people say, yes, you need time for training, you need time for delivery, for for logistics. But it you have to look at when the political decision was made to, to actually give them. You know, you can't say, oh, well, Ukraine could never, never um, learn to use this in time when they were only given a year and a half into into the war. So I think I think there it's 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 a pretty clear case and I think history will look probably pretty 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 badly on 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 it's not just dilly daddling it's 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 something deeper than that unfortunately and the last question here is that that, that strategy almost implies that the war would have to end in some kind of negotiated uh, peace, or as you said, a sort of stable peace. Looking at Putin, his behavior, his words, um, the, I would say, non-conformity to any agreement he's pretty much ever signed, um, how realistic is the idea of of any negotiation? Um, The Russians are also known to negotiate in a particularly uh, unreasonable style. They always go in with with maximalist claims, unrealistic uh, sort of demands. Um, They're they're not not a great uh, negotiation partner, are they? No. So, yeah, what I'll say about negotiations is that, of course, uh, it is a topic that remains uh, to taboo in Ukraine. Uh, I mean, a lot of taboo topics in Ukraine are starting to be uh, kind of brought out into the open in the Ukrainian media sphere, but uh, the open talk of negotiations is still, even among media, is still quite taboo. Uh, But, and that's for good reason, as you said. Uh, You know, it's very hard to, to imagine 
Russia keeping their word and respecting a piece of paper saying, um, you know, you won't go further forward. Um, on the other hand, uh, behind that taboo, I've you know I've spoken to lots of lots of service members uh, on my trips to the front line, including some higher level commanders who are quite intelligent people who who know what's going on, and and you know they they talk about the potential for for a negotiated ceasefire, maybe even this year, maybe even in the first half of this year um and you know it's not so i'm saying it's not taboo for them you know it, it, they're the ones out there in the trenches and and the idea of of putting a stop to this is not taboo uh unfortunately you have to you know you have to make a, a contact with reality not only with the reality of of negotiations potentially being on the table uh no pun intended but uh but also with the reality of what needs to be done to actually make put Ukraine in a position where it's at all in their interests uh, to negotiate. Because the last thing we want, and this is what I wrote about, the last thing we want is, is for Ukraine to be desperately suing for peace. Okay, so the causal kind of chain that people like Trump or Musk sometimes uh, bring up is that we cut off aid to Ukraine and then force Zelensky to negotiate, and then there's peace in Ukraine. Whereas uh, what they're actually asking for is for Ukraine to start losing the war. And so if Ukraine is, a, in, is, is in a position where they're desperately forced to negotiate, as you said, Russia will be looking around like, well, everything is going great for us. This is exactly what we want. Um, so if you do want to stop, you'll have to give us all of this. And even that's no guarantee that we will, we won't come back in, in a couple of years or five years and, and take more. So, so it's not completely out of the question, but what the real question is about is what needs to be done both within Ukraine um, in their strategic command and, and military and political leadership and, and, and in the West as well, because again, Ukrainian success is a function of Western support, to put the war in a position where it's in Russia's interests to want to stop moving forward and, and fighting this war rather than in Ukraine's interests, because it will never be in Ukraine's interests. It, it will only be the most desperate and 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 tragic turn of events if 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 that is forced to occur. So that's the question: What can be done so that it's Russia who wants to stop? And looking forward, yes, on the Western side, it just means it requires a lot of sustained uh, political support, not just in words, but, but in actions. And on the Ukrainian side, uh, yeah, intelligent decisions also need to be made about how to go about this war in 2024. Well, Francis, that's been absolutely fascinating. <clears throat> We're going to put links to your articles, of course, uh, in the description of this. Thanks so much for sharing your insights with us and uh, your precious time as well. Wonderful. Thank you. Really, really enjoyed the conversation.